Hola, Latinos in Clinical Research. Thank you so much for being here today. For those of you who are present and for those of you that will be watching later, um, we have a guest speaker today who's back, Daniel Perez, and I'm really excited to have him here. Um, thank you so much for being here today, Daniel. Really appreciate it. Um, I know that your background since we last had you on has changed a bit, and I uh, just wanted to see if you wanted to kind of give an intro uh, to yourself for those of them, uh, those of the members that have are barely hearing this for the first time, and for those that are interested in knowing on uh, how your background's changed. Yeah, sure. So I, um, I believe last time, when, when were we on last time, Ashley? It was about a year ago? Yeah, it's about a year. It's been a bit. Wow. Okay. So my role has changed. My institution has changed. I was previously the chief executive officer at Macro Trials in Los Angeles. I am now global head of patient experience, diversity, and inclusion at Worldwide Clinical Trials. Um, it is a, it, I believe it's the largest mid-size CRO uh, serving a global reach, and I am excited to be here. So thank you so much. Um, I know I'm really excited when I saw that your post about your new role. Uh, one, because obviously I'm very happy. I mean, uh, as all the other co-founders know, we speak to a lot of people in the industry, and it's not often that you see a Latino in a higher role such as yours. And so I'm very happy and also to know that it was you, right? Because we know uh, personally, but also, you know, on the business end, because I know that you work with Dan when you got everybody and speak with them on sites how uh, active you are in the community and for sites and a big, a big advocate. So very happy to hear that. Yeah, it's my pleasure. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to really be in a role that can champion the site voice internally at the CRO, which I think is a much needed change. Um, and really being able to come in, not just from the site perspective, but also the patient pathway and the patient experience journey of just saying like, look, you know, we need more resources for our sites. We need more resources for diverse communities. Um, and that is something that is a constant day in and day out, I'll say challenge, <laughs> um, because it is a lot of getting people to think and rewire and revisit how they've done things, particularly now, because it is no longer a nice to have or an altruistic motive. We know that the FDA is releasing in December, the final order, if you will, that came from Congress from the uh, Food and Drug, uh, uh, from the Fedora Act, from the, um, what's the word? I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the word. The, um, forgive me, my caffeine isn't kicking in. The Reform, the Reform Act. So the Food and Drug Reform Omnibus Bill that came out in, uh, in last year in 2022. So uh, we're excited to see that come through in January of this year. And then in December, we're seeing that move from uh, recommendations into requirements uh, that is being imposed upon the regulatory agencies. Yes, most definitely. Um, and I guess to kind of start off on the theme of today, right? Um, as you know, May 20th was National Clinical Trials Day. Um, so for me personally, I think it should be more than a day. I think it should be a month or every month, really. Um, but uh, personally, I would like to know for you, you know, what do you, what is clinical trials mean to you, especially given your background and how you've you know moved up in the industry? For me, Clinical Trials Day means being able to wake up every morning into a thriving life. I am first and foremost a patient. I was diagnosed with HIV about 10 years ago. And I remember sitting in the parking lot of the Walmart, looking at my prescription medication for the first time and looking at this one pill and thinking to myself, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants of how many patients were not lost to this um, epidemic of HIV and the AIDS crisis in the uh, early to late 90s. And here I am with a management that is less complicated than diabetes. And I'm going to be able to live a thriving life that's frankly not impacted really at all, if, if, if at all very little. And so for me, Clinical Trials Day is recognizing that there are so many elements of our day in and day out life that we either forget or we don't necessarily are connecting the dots. Even as clinical research professionals, like when I go to the pharmacy and I pick up my medication, it's easy for me to just take the package insert and toss it in the trash. But guess what? That is the investigator's brochure. If we open up that, you know, paper thin, uh, huge paper that turns into like a Dora the Explorer map, that's actually all of the com combined clinical trial data from the phase one all the way up to the phase threes and post-market. So for me, clinical trials day is really having a stance of gratitude and being first and foremost, the patient, 
Um, and also being able to advocate on behalf of my mom because of my career in clinical research, it's not easy for a healthcare practitioner to try and, you know, confuse my mom or give her misinformation because I'm always in the room and you can't really get anything through me. <laughs> um, and I think that that's, uh, it's something that's, it was born out of my career in clinical research. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, definitely, you know, important to get the perspe uh, personal perspective, right? And yeah, def um, for me, kind of re resonate with what you just said about your mother. I, I've noticed that that for me, my father, that is, and my mom a little bit, she's a nurse, she's a little bit more, um, the word, like she doesn't want to, <laughs> you know, involve me a little too much, but my father definitely, you know, being able to be in the room with him and give him some movement with his physician and seeing it firsthand also how, there is misinformation and or the way that it is delivered or it's inaccurate or not as smoothly for Spanish speaking patients. So thank you for, for sharing that, for sharing your story. I really appreciate it so much. Yeah. Um, Moni, before I kind of just go on the next question, uh, Moni, Dan, Chris, if you guys wanted to ask anything before I shift, I don't want to take over this too much. No, it's fine. I, I was actually thinking when, when um, Daniel was talking about Obviously, his personal perspective from the clinical research world and, uh, and, uh, and as a patient, and then also thinking about his career or his, I mean, how you started and where you are right now. How long has it been, Daniel? 14 years. Imagine in 14 years, you started as a, uh, please remind me, how, how do you start it in the industry? I started as what you would call an environmental services tech at Cedar sinai So really just working as stock surgical supplies, vomit bags, gloves, helping the emergency department staff maintain an efficient workflow from the support side of things. And what happened there was, you know, my mom always said, once you get your foot in the door, don't just get uh, accustomed to being there. Always ask for more work or ask for to be challenged some way, somehow, you know, you're too smart. We gave up and we sacrificed so much to be in this country for you to just become complacent. And so when I was in the hospital setting, I always made friends with the administrators. I always asked them about the nurses, the doctors. I was never, never, not once shy of rubbing elbows at the nursing stand when everybody else was like, oh, no, you're supposed to be invisible. Like you're supposed to just come in and you're not supposed to interfere or interrupt. And what I found was Doctors and nurses, they love to interact, they love to teach, they love to tell you about the work that they're doing. And so there's there's a saying that I grew up with, preguntando, preguntando, se llega a Roma. And so, you know, <laughs> if you ask enough times, you'll get to Rome and you'll get signposted there, right? And so eventually I started working with doctors, asking for more work. Oh, Daniel's good at Excel. No, I wasn't. I was on YouTube <laughs> University learning all of the Excel, right? But you always say yes to the opportunity. You always say yes is what I was taught. And so eventually I found myself working with principal investigators on research projects. Um, what is it? I don't know, but sign me up, right? Because there's YouTube University and I'm sure I'm gonna learn from you. And so I began to work in neurosciences on a pituitary program. And throughout the years, I suddenly stumbled into a research assistant role and that became a clinical research coordinator role. And eventually that became a clinical research manager role at a different hospital. Um, and I worked there doing programmatic management, um, NIH funded primarily and also pharma sponsored. And then one day I found myself being appointed CEO of a startup company and really building out a site network and infrastructure for research naive physicians. So really looking at those doctors who they put their hands up in the air and they go like, I want to do clinical trials and I've got the patients, but I don't know how to do it. Right. And so building out an entire infrastructure, clinical operations for them. So that by the time that I came into the job hunt and it's like, well, what do you want to do, Daniel? I'm like, I don't want to be a CRA. <laughs> That's for sure. I respect the role so much, but I, I, it's not for the faint of heart. I don't want to get into project management because I'm tired. Didn't want to get into ClinOps. And so when the conversation started with Worldwide, um, the job didn't exist. It was something that we created together over the span of, I think, six or seven months. And we landed at this role because I have a background in patient experience and pathways and working at bedside and working in an academic center and also in clinical research and site level clinops, which 
I was very vocal. You can talk about diversity and inclusion and you can go out and find someone with a pedigree who's been 15, 20 years at a CRO. But is that truly going to have an impact if you don't understand site level clinical operations, if you don't understand what local patient recruitment looks like or have an understanding of how diverse communities interact with healthcare, just let alone clinical trials. And so that's how I you know, wound up in this capacity over the last 14 years. Wow, you have done so much. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't know that that was worldwide. That, yeah. That's amazing. Wow, wow. I mean, yeah, and, and yeah, go ahead, Ashley. No, 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 I just said that's a whole new respect. I didn't know that you guys created that role together. That's quite amazing. Yeah, I'm very, very lucky. Um, you know, I've, I've worked really hard, but at the same time, I've never been shy of asking for what I want. I think um, as Latinos, sometimes we may fall into the trap of you work hard and you're lucky to be here. You work hard and, you know, just be grateful of where you're at and be grateful of your thing because the next level up feels like you have to work 10 times as hard as the competition. And you know what? The reality is it's true. When someone is good enough for a role, that's not enough for us. We have to kind of work three times harder and it can get very exhausting. But once you do that, you better ask for what you deserve and you better ask for what you know you're capable of. And knowing that there's no perfect role that you're going to ever meet 100% of the qualifications for and really pushing yourself and going, what is it that is within my talent to be able to do? And then flip it, right? The people that you work for, they should be educated on the talent that you bring. It shouldn't be, here's your work task, here's your work goals, I'm going to go deliver. It's like, yeah, I can do that. But did you know that my talent is best put to use here, 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 and there? And when you mm -hmm. do that, I think it's very rare that we find ourselves advocating on behalf of ourselves because I think a lot of us do grow up with that mentality, right? Of like, you're already here. Don't make noise. You know, don't be managradecido. Like you are here and you need to have an appreciation of the work that's being given to you. But the reality is we're very, very talented. And I think we oftentimes sell ourselves short. I agree 100%. I totally agree too. Yeah, I think uh, by hearing all that you have that you have been sharing, is it reminds me of, of something that Dan has been saying many times in the in his podcast, and it's related to making yourself a generalist. Mm -hmm. And you did it from the bottom to the place where you are right now. You are very. Um, I mean, you are well-rounded in the industry. You have a lot of knowledge and you have been giving yourself a lot more opportunities, uh, which I think is, is, is amazing because that's the way we open the doors and that's the way we also discover our own uh, strengths and, and, um, and weaknesses and also, the, uh, and also find where, uh, where we can flourish or in which positions or which situations can we uh, become experts and not just that, but feel joy uh, doing it, right? So mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's, I think, always going a mile ahead and learning more than you're supposed to, doing more than you're supposed to, is not, it's not just for the, for the business where you are working, uh, but it's also for yourself. The, the only person that at that point is growing is yourself. And, and you're giving opportunities to your own. Um, so I, I love what I'm hearing. I, I love hearing what you're saying. I love hearing all your experiences. And most of all, knowing that um, that you have not uh, settled for, for just less than you deserve. And, and on top of that, hearing that your mom was always there supporting you. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, always. Yeah, I think given your background and everything, and I think this goes for everybody here listening today right now, as well as for later in the recording, is that, you know, regardless of what station you're in, you know, um, always, if you know more from your experience and you see somebody else coming in, again, regardless of the background, whether they're Latino or not, you know, the point is to try and see their strengths, right, and understand maybe where they're coming from. And like Daniel said, you know, looking at the background, making sure that if somebody, if you're in a position to actually be fortunate enough to give somebody the opportunity to work somewhere, you know, always consider the background and their strengths and make sure that they're not cutting themselves short, right? Um, I was in a position not too long ago 
um, with an uh, international medical graduate. And she was extremely smart. And she was asking for literally 20 or 30,000 below what her, her range was. And when we discussed about potentially moving forward or up, she was very hesitant about, you know, asking for more when it obviously, you know, she was very well deserving of that. And, and um, so, yeah, when you say that, that really resonated with me very much. And thank you for mentioning that. And hopefully for those that are listening, if you have that opportunity to do that for somebody, please, you know, don't hold off on them. But um, yeah, when you, when, when Daniel was saying that uh, if there is an opportunity, you should take it, it actually reminds me of the Virgin Atlantic um, founder. Uh, he, he, has a, he has that quote somewhere, um, Richard Branson, that it says, if you, if you have a great opportunity, take it and then learn <laughs> in the process, mm -hmm. right? And, 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 that's, and that's how we should take the opportunities and work. Obviously, not doing less than you're supposed to, but doing more than you're supposed to. That's how you go and get uh, to points that you probably don't even imagine. Sure. Well, um, I think the next thing I'd like to ask, Daniel, is as we talked about what clinical trials means to you, you know, and, and in your role, I'm sure you're given multiple opportunities or various ways in which you can make an impact in the community, whether it's in the long run or short term, right? Um, and so I guess, you know, um, as far as you're able to share, of course, um, how exactly, you know, how, how are you trying, you know, to make impact, whether it's through work or personal, you can talk about personal, if work is not, you know, not able to speak about work, but you know, what, what are different ways that you are, you know, doing your, uh, your end to, I guess, be an advocate? Because I know you do many things even outside of your work. And so um, I feel like what I commonly see, especially in the uh, Latino community, is that, you know, we work, we work, we work, and then we go home and we tend with our family. But I do think that having presence and advocacy in any way, which way we can, is very important in getting out there and spreading the word about the importance of our, you know, um, our group and making sure that we're being seen and heard in different various aspects. So I'm just curious uh, on your end, how you are outside of all that. Yeah, so within the environment of work, I think folks are very surprised when I speak business in the context of diversity and inclusion. And a lot of it is re-educating clients of saying like, look, you are developing this drug, this compound, this biologic, you want it to get it into the market, you want it to be a success commercially, have you thought about ways into mitigating your risk of, of your drug failing? They kind of look at me and they go, well, what do you mean diversity and inclusion person in the room? You're supposed to be about patient recruitment, right? It's like, well, no, not quite, right? If you're thinking about having a robust product go into the market, you're going to want to think about it being efficacious in a representative community, more importantly, because then you mitigate the risk of the FDA coming to you and saying you've got post-market surveillance requirements with phase four studies because you neglected to enroll patients. Um, we look at Plavix, which was approved, but it demonstrated similar efficacy to placebo in Asian American population. So now you've got the state of uh, Hawaii and over a billion dollars in class action lawsuits to Sanofi and Bristol-Myers Squibbs. They kind of look at you and they go, oh, I didn't think about that. Right. So how much is an investment of one or two million dollars in your program now to support uh, community-based sites to uh, be able to support more resources? Um, you're flinching when I tell you to contract a study coordinator at $85 an hour of bill rate. But guess what? There is an extremely high turnover of study coordinators. And if they're going into contracted roles, it's because they're being paid better. So put your money where your mouth is, right? And it's a lot of educating sponsors. It's a lot of educating clients and making them realize that their investment has a return that has a commercial impact. This is you're thinking further down the road. You may not see it in immediate return on your study specifics, right? And I can sit there and tell you Yes, we need a community-based site. Let's get them a contracted study coordinator, a data entry person. Let's get them the, the equipment that they need. Let's, let's procure the centrifuge with the refrigerated capabilities. Like, let's give the site everything that they need. And they've got the patient reach and enrollment. We can do that. But I think it's harder for clients to see the big picture of the commercial impact. And that's where I balance being able to dial things high level for clients 
and also coming into the project delivery teams and saying, no, 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 this is how you're going to be able to support a community-based site. These are the things that when you go to an academic medical center, you don't have to think about the, the 20 Celsius fridge or the minus 80 or things with the capabilities that way that perhaps smaller sites are struggling to get a hold of or, or even maintain because they're rented on a study-by-study -study basis, right? And so that's the impact side of the day-to-day -day work. It could be client-facing, it could be bid defense meetings, it could be coaching a project delivery team with a site that they may be very frustrated with, and then just making them realize like, look, there is, I don't believe a site out there that is intentionally trying to make your life miserable. You've got to learn to read between the lines. What are the struggles of the site? What are their frustrations? What are you not listening to? Um, that's kind of the day in and day out impact. And one of the things that I'm doing now is I'm driving a global reach for language interpretation capabilities for worldwide so that when we come to a site and we say, what languages other than English do you have access to in terms of patients, we're able to put an interpreter in a box, ship them to the site. And when you activate that first immediate patient encounter and you pick up the phone, you can dial in the interpreter from the very beginning of your pre-screen. And when the patient comes on site, you have an interpreter on an iPad. It is a live person geographically from the region. So you can have Spanish from Spain, Spanish from Mexico and Spanish from Central America. Wow. You touch on the actual map and that is where the interpreter is going to come to life and be able to have medically qualified and certified interpreters who are culturally educated in that region. Um, and the continuity of not just that, but also helping sites with like informed consent with a short form and then fully translated documents and how do they SOPify their informed consent of a non-English speaking patient, like all of these things I'm designing at the global scale and I'm kind of coming to the organization and I'm saying, here are the resources that you can invest in, here's the impact you're going to have. So it, it, it's really like, I've been telling folks in the next year, it, I'm going to need to hire one or two people, if not more, because there is the aspect of my job that is a lot of global design of tools and resources, like the ones that I'm talking about with language interpretation. And then there's the day-to-day -day operational side of coaching project delivery teams. So it's going to be more of like a diversity project manager type of role that will be reportable up to me. So I'm starting to think about how worldwide needs to start to grow um, this service line, because again, it's only going to get, the demand is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger after January of 2024. I'm not going to be able to keep up with it, which is, which is great. Uh, that's great job security and I, that I've made out for myself. Um, but the thing is you're seeing new roles, the, the new roles are, are coming to alive. You know, the organizations are giving birth to brand new roles that historically never existed. And that's because we are in a new unique needs environment with where we're at in the industry. You heard um, it here first, guys. Send all resumes. Yes. To Daniel. <laughs> no, yeah. I love it. I love it. I love, I love I got goosebumps. I got yeah. goosebumps. Daniel, we want 10 Daniels in every single company. Really, yeah. Because yes. the people that have your role in some of the companies are not doing what you're doing. You're no. truly transforming. You're transforming yeah. that company. I can yeah. tell you that, and 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 slowly but surely, besides transforming that in that company, you're going to transform many other organizations yeah. because everybody's going to be wanting to do the same. Yeah. Don't be don't be don't be a surprise if you get a job offer after this video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, but that that really is amazing to hear that. Um, the, I've actually seen that on the like therapy and as far as like physical therapy, when I hurt my ankle, um, they, and they did do this with doctors where they, you know, if you need to, if you're at the therapist and they, you don't have a doctor's, you know, uh, referral, they tune in a doctor from somewhere and then they assess you there virtually. And then you get the referral and you don't have to worry about this or that, but that is amazing. I really love hearing that you guys are doing that. It's about time. We hear, we've talked to, you know, whether it's here in person through webinars or over the phone that we don't have, you know, for all the members to see or hear. We've heard so many talks and so many of this and so many of that for the past few years. And this is the first time, honestly, where we've seen or heard something that is actually clearly effective. And that it's a big, that's a big change. So thank you so much for 
for being, again, advocating for that, you know, having the background you did to bring this information and actively constantly sharing, you know, your input that is clearly very important to, you know, these companies and, and all the change that you're bringing, because that's, it is the long-term run uh, goal, right? And so that's, that's amazing. Um, so like just hearing that, that is one of the biggest issues that we hear that are like on boots on the ground, right? The translational issues and the ICFs and all of that. Me personally, I'm, I'm curious, and I know that the rest of the co-founders have been curious as well, uh, if you can speak to this is, you know, there's a lot of like, not maybe red taping, but just like processes, so many people you have to go through, right? Levels of people to get answers and this and that. Um, you've seen the site perspective and the academia perspective, and now that even the CRO end, you know, you find that there's like commonalities as to why it takes so long for processes to change. Is it just because it has to go through so many levels? Is it because you're just, you know, really having to take multiple perspectives before even considering the process of how it'll affect the change? I mean, I'm just curious on the operation end. Yeah, so it's all impact, it's all driven by costs, okay? This is my biggest surprise. Um, sure, anybody can help on the project, but a CRO, you're still, so the thing is, as a CRO, we are hired, okay? We are hired on behalf of the sponsor to do a job. How is the CRO paid? Well, the paid according to the budgets for how they're made for CROs are based off of units and billable hours. And so if I have one specialized team, that's my site activation management team supporting activities that really a CRA should be doing, it upsets the balance of a billable hour versus a unit. And so <laughs> there's, a, there's a sensitivity of folks going, well, we don't want to utilize all the units, so we need to make sure we know who's going to actually do what component in support of whatever's coming through for the project itself. Is this a site activation? Um, element of work? Is this a CRA component? Is this a um, feasibility team component? Which I was surprised things get split out. There's feasibility, there's site activation, and then there's site selection. I would think that all three functions, fun, you know, operate under the same hood, but from a costing perspective, they are separated out because I've, I've learned that one completed FQ can take up to 10 to 15 hours per document to process because it needs to be plugged into feasibility intelligence. It needs to be plugged into the overall um, feasibility of the entire trial. I thought it was, uh, here's the feasibility questionnaire. I'm gonna look at it and make a decision about whether or not we can proceed. It's actually a lot more complex than that. Um, so the same way that a CRO comes to the site and goes, why don't you just answer the queries? <laughs> and it's not that straightforward. Similarly, on the CRO side, I'm realizing now, oh, wow, it is not that straightforward to be able to support certain things. Now, there are efficiency opportunities that we can introduce, and it's the same thing that can be said about the site level too, right? There are technologies that can be implemented to make your site operate better, CTMS, EREG, eSource. Similarly, at the CRO level, I'm looking for those opportunities to introduce efficiencies with technology or with programs or with processes so that it isn't that cumbersome or that it isn't moving that slow. But yeah, it is very much driven by cost. The, the costing model is what drives a lot of it. Well, that's really good to kind of get that perspective on things. I, I knew more on the study end because of, you know, being a zero to a, a CRA, but that's, that makes a lot more sense as far as like higher, higher up on the, on the chain. So thank you for sharing that. Um, one of the things that I think that you know, not just like site to CRO or zero to sponsor. I also think that on the end of also potentially getting the, um, how do you say it, the, the trust of the patient overall, right? The whole process is, you know, well, it takes so long and this and that, and, you know, why am I not being considered and all these kinds of things. I think having that full open discussion and conversation is, um, and having it clear for everybody to understand, right, um, is actually very, very important. And I'm, makes me want to bring up, you know, these two conferences, obviously to one to plug us, but you know, the Save Our Sites conference, which I really hope that you'll be able to go. Um, I think having somebody with your perspective and background and um, your openness about everything is, is really crucial. Um, but also, um, and please forgive me if I'm missaying the title, Monica, it's the Patient Community Conference. Is it jo with, by Joanna Lavoie? 
Oh, yes. Uh, one second. Judy, you know? <laughs> yeah, Judy. Um, I believe it's called the Community Engagement go, Conference. Um, I believe, I don't know if that's the official title of it. I think that, because um, I, I, like Dan, I know that you go to the conferences, right? Um, you know, we had the uh, great opportunity to actually, you know, see you in person uh, at the SDRS. And I know you go to, to a few other ones. Um, do you feel when you go to these conferences that there's, to, to have like, I guess, a space to talk more openly about the process, especially when it comes to like coordinators and PIs or site owners or the, the dual, um, understanding the process of the CRO and or sponsor and more clearly so that maybe the communication um, and how they also maybe even potentially communicate that down to the patient based off of what might actually involve them is beneficial. It's gotten more actionable. Over the last few years, I think um, in the beginning, or at least when I first started going, a lot of the conversation was very positive and look at all of the things on the bright side and look at what industry is doing and let's celebrate the wins. Like, for example, when the COVID vaccines were front and center and Pfizer achieved marginal diversity and inclusion metrics, you know, everybody was celebrating that. I was actually quite critical of it. I was critical of the celebration component and actually got into a bit of a public um, squabble with another major influencer in our clinical research space. And it was, it was quite a very public squabble because I said, you've got to take your foot off of our necks. And that was so controversial because, well, why can't we celebrate some of the diversity and inclusion? It's like, well, you can't celebrate it until it's representative of the actual real world. And I will refuse to sit here and accept mediocre um, and, 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 and moderate and, and very small incremental progress because yes, you did it. Let's give, give yourself your pat on your back, keep going. Because the minute that we celebrate it the way that they were trying to celebrate um, the, the victories and diversity and inclusion, people get complacent. Mm -hmm. Not only do people get complacent, but it becomes the benchmark next year. Oh, we only have to do as good as we did last year or slightly better. Oh, we only have to do as good as Pfizer did for that one study. And, 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 you know, that'll be good enough. Right. And I'm seeing it now, even in clients coming through the door and they're saying, oh, well, for that study, we achieved X diversity metrics. That was great. We're going to award the study just because of that alone. Okay, great. And then I challenge my study teams and I say, that's fine, but you can't rest on those old lore. Like you have to go back and do better. And yeah. so it is that type of critical dialogue that I'm seeing at the conferences take more and more place. And sponsors at the end of the um, talks or at the end of the panels, they'll come up to you and they'll give you their business card and they'll say, let's connect. Like, I want to hear those ideas. I want to actually move um, tangibly on, on what it is that you were speaking about. So it is helpful. Um, and then at the end of the day, we're all patient advocates. So whatever we're seeing boots on the ground with our patients, that is the most valuable type of feedback or input or dialogue that we can have because, you know, translations as we're seeing for, I know when I came out to uh, Sun Valley, Judy, you, you rose, you gave me awareness of how these translations are either not on the right protocol amendment version and or are not culturally competent to the type of Spanish that's being spoken. I mean, they're just words that make no sense. And how does that impact the rating? How does that impact uh, somebody who's, I mean, if you're, if, if it's my mom and you're administering this battery and you're asking her these questions in Spanish, that's in a different Spanish that she's not used to, how is she going to respond to those? And then how's that going to translate into efficacy data? Is it skewed? It's skewed because you don't have cultural competency, right? Um, sponsors don't know this. They just see the box that says Spanish and they check it. And so it's important that we have an advocacy at that level to be able to say like, look, we get it. You have your vendor that does translations. It's not good enough. I'm sorry to be very pointed about it, but it's just not good enough. Where can you go and find additional translation services that can make this a little bit more regionally competent? Um, and then they love to say, well, it's not scientifically validated. Well, whose job is it to validate it then? It's not yeah. my job, right? It's your job. You're the one conducting the study. It's your drug and you're developing. Why don't you get your scientists and your medical affairs team to validate these on behalf of the sites? That's not a responsibility or burden that the site should, should be you know, holding on their shoulders. And so these are all the very tough 
conversations that ruffle people's feathers. And, you know, I've just so far so good. No one's put a sock in my mouth. Uh, and so I'm going to continue to have these direct conversations Thanks. because we have to. Awesome. Thank you for that. <laughs> I guess you had a question. Um, yeah. So, well, I guess you kind of spoke about it already a little bit, but now that you're, you know, on the CRO side and you've worked at the site side, you know, there's a lot of times that you'll see on LinkedIn and other places that sites tend to complain, right, about CROs, sponsors, about all these things. But as a site, um, I don't really know the ins and outs of what goes on at a CRO, right? You just kind of give us a little overview so I understand certain things a lot better, which is why things take forever. We reach out, we don't get a response right away, we don't get a resolution to things, so it gets frustrating. But there's a whole process behind the scenes that we don't really understand happens, which is kind of what you mentioned. Um, I guess going back to that, is there any advice you would give to sites before we're just quick to blame the sponsor CRO? Maybe, I don't know, things to think about or a different approach, right, for certain situations that we run into. My favorite trick up my sleeve that whenever I had a team of coordinators or research managers reporting up to me and they would be frustrated. They're like, I can't get my payment or they won't pay me or they won't respond or I can't close this query because the data manager won't. Okay, so things of that nature. One of the first things I ask is, have you picked up the phone? and called the number in their signature line. Nine times out of 10, the answer was, oh no, I just sent a follow-up email. Well, let me tell you something. How many emails do I not get? And I'm sure we all get. And how many times do we wanna sit there and just bang our head on the computer screen and not have to deal with responding to an email because it's always the email that just immediately got in within the first two minutes of us sitting at our desk that get our immediate attention. So there are two things that I do. Number one is I get on the phone. Number two, I leave voicemails. And number three, I smile when I'm on the phone um, because we're human beings and we're hardwired for connection. So if you are that one human interaction that you have a day that feels like a breath of fresh air, not only are we feeling connected, but hey, I want to help you and, and you're going to help me, right? So that's, that's, the number, that's the first thing I'm going to say is really be able to connect with people on the phone versus email. I, I, and, and then you do have those grouchy grinches throughout the CRO that, what can I help you with? Well, you need to email your CRA. Well, that's a project man. Even with those grinches and those grumpy people still smile into the phone, still exude that warmth because I, I guarantee you that it's nothing personal. They're going through a lot of stuff. They're going through an incredibly heavy workload, et cetera. Um, so that is, that is, it's always worked wonders for me. I actually a lot of the things that I see folks complaining about on public social media, um, yes, I've encountered them, but more often than not, nine times out of 10, the secret formula to how I've gotten to resolve them has been just getting on the phone, just literally getting on the phone, leaving voicemails, getting to the right person. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's been immensely helpful for me. Thank you for that. Yeah, um, I, as a see, uh, CRA, um, when we would deal with sites that had issues with payments, usually it was just done through email. So yeah, definitely <laughs> I can attest to that. And Naomi also agrees. Thank you, Naomi. Um, kind of jumping back real quick to that last question we asked, you had mentioned how, you know, having um, advocacy and also groups of, um, I guess, other resources for patients, right? And so, you know, we always talk about site and usually CRO, right, or sponsor, but, you know, shifting it back to the patient. Um, you also having advocacy in other groups, outside groups and all of those things. How important to you do you feel is it that bigger organizations, CROs and sponsors, um, connect with these patient advocacy groups? I know I actually have some people on here right now um, that are from some groups like that throughout the U.S. and the importance of them being present and being considered as resources. Um, and then that's why I wanted to plug that uh, um, community engagement um, conference, because I was very happy to hear that that was being created, because I do think they are very important. Yeah, so it's interesting. Worldwide seems to be very innovative and, and very much thinking ahead. And I say that because um, 
word on the grapevine is that we are having an inaugural patient advocacy role opening up. And it is a dedicated person that is going to be specialized in community engagement. They're going to be a dedicated resource to the VAT, to the different um, communities that not just not just the community engagement, but patient advocacy groups. They're very separate, um, you know, different entities and how you work with a patient advocacy group is not the approach you're going to take with community engagement and vice versa. And also it's not a patient recruitment thing either, because you can't go to a patient advocacy group with your study in your back pocket, right? These are relationships and these are partnerships that you have to build over time. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been very interesting to see how that is, is unfolding. I think what makes it tricky is we're still all responsible to a bottom line, whether you're operating your own site or whether you're working at the CRO, um, you're still reportable to a bottom line. This is still a business. You know, there isn't, as long as we're in pharma sponsored clinical trials, there isn't an altruistic motive to do something at gratis, right? And so the reason why I'm saying that is because what makes it challenging is quantifying the ROI on community engagement patient advocacy groups. How do you quantify financial support of the organizations with what you are going to be looking at long-term and then who pays for it? Do you just go to five sponsors and say, pitch in, you know, and we're going to go and, and, and uh, engage this community or we're going to engage this patient advocacy groups. It's like, yeah, you still have to think about that part because realistically speaking, that is where the true movement is going to be. It's like the financial resources, the support and impact. How do you measure that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, I'm sorry. Like everything you were saying, it really just kind of like hit me. And yes, I, I agree. The whole thing on the financial end and um, I do feel that a lot of the conversation is, well, why, why isn't more being done? Why isn't there being more um, support? But yeah, it's, it is, it is a business at uh, the end of the day and things you have to come down to the wire and be able to make sense financially. And also the overall point of view of why that involvement's uh, happening. So please note that when you guys do do that, we have a bunch of contacts on patient advocacy, group, advocacy groups that we would love to connect you with. Um, so please, you know, if we can do anything to help connect you and, and worldwide with those people, um, we would ha be happy to. Maybe even we can do a situation where we have a, another webinar and announce that and hopefully we can get a big group of people to get connected. Mm -hmm. um, so Perla Nunez, hello. Uh, she has a question uh, regarding the compensation piece to the study participants. It's unfortunate that Latinos uh, without a social security number can't participate. They are willing to participate but can't. Um, so my question is, is there anything that's being done? What is being done? Because, you know, I mean. Yeah, so I mean, what? Yeah. When, when I was at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, we served a predominantly undocumented Hispanic patient demographic. And what was being done at that point was the local IRB had approved language for cash stipend. So that's number one. And we use these things literally called money bags. It's a, it's a bag with a lock and you go to the cashier's um, office and you give them the project number and they dispense the cash bag. And if it's $100, then you take out a $100 bill and you give it to the patient at every visit and you document that the stipend was released. Um, on the sponsor side of things, it, requ <laughs> it required a lot of advocating and a lot of educating on, hey, there isn't anything stopping you from dispensing stipends because it's for research. It is a stipend. It is not an earned wage. You can't treat it that way. It is reimbursement for time and effort of a participant in their, in their you know, participating in a clinical trial. Now, um, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it that we were doing was you can opt to name another person to receive your stipend on your behalf. And so if there was no way to obtain the cash that way, that was another um, opportunity that the IRB would approve saying that, hey, I don't have my social, but my son, can you issue stipend to my son? And then the son, you know, you sign off through the informed consent that the son receives that stipend. So that's another avenue. Um, 
But the reality is it continues to be case by case basis, Bedla, when I actually start to get deep down into the weeds with the different projects. So if you think about it in layers, I get involved very early on at the high level of a strategy with an opportunity. More and more, I'm getting pulled into the specifics projects now that it is in post-award and it's con- the studies being conducted. It is in those arenas where I, I just advocate like, hey, have you thought about non-trackable reimbursements over to communities uh, that they're undocumented mm-hmm. communities? And so it requires a lot of educating and people get a little nervous because there's like, oh my God, well, there's regulatory. Well, just ask regulatory. Don't get shy about it, right? Just ask. The the regulatory experts are there not for you to avoid and hide from them, but to come to them and ask them the tough questions, right? And so it it requires some navigating. Okay. I just feel like more needs to be done, right? Um, So, Daniel, I'm waiting for you to lead the way now, okay? Right. If there were were such a thing as president of the clinical research industry, I will vote for you. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel, I have a question. Yeah. Where do you see the industry going or progressing or advancing in regards to the uh, clinical, I mean, diversity part? And this includes patients and also um uh, workforce because i mean i'm asking because we've been working two years uh two years now almost three years now uh doing advocacy and it's been mostly talking and not seeing the companies doing the walk so i understand uh what the fda has done um in the um i mean with the with the guidelines and all of that and enforcing it in december however i have seen some change but i have not seen what we want to see right so i uh, now that i mean obviously you're more involved right now in the in the CRO spectrum and you probably hear more about the sponsors and 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 probably more closer than we actually do. I would like to to hear your perspective on that. So my forecast is already kind of happening a little bit. I saw um, Raymond Nomisu from Creo, and I don't know if he coined the term or if he's borrowing it from somewhere, but I absolutely loved it. And we're seeing that instead of DCTs, we're now seeing DDTs, diversity driven trials. And let me tell you, if you think about the way water rolls from up in the mountains, down into the lakes and down into the cascades, pharma is the source of the water flowing. CRO is the middle point of seeing the stream. And then by the time site feasibility questionnaires are happening, site selection, the water's already running down the river, okay? Mm -hmm. So when I say upstream, think about me sitting over here, seeing what's coming. And let me tell you, you may not be seeing it now, But what's coming in the pipeline, what's coming in site selection during um, Q1 and Q2 of 2024, the different things that are going to be coming down opportunity-wise for 2024 are all going to be driven by diversity and inclusion. Why? Because sponsors are not just asking about it. They're holding our CROs accountable to what are you going to actually do during feasibility questionnaires, site selection, et cetera. And so on the industry side of things, you're going to start to see it become squeezing and making it a criteria for site selection. So my biggest advice for sites is develop your own diversity and inclusion strategy, create slides, create material, create like gone are the days when you do the one pager on your site and your PI. Now it needs to be on diversity and inclusion because frankly, There is less and less. I had a sponsor the other day who said, we care less about the key opinion leader and we want to know more about community-based physicians. Okay, so what does that tell us? That tells us that they want more diversity and inclusion-oriented sites in terms of who's going to go out and they're going to be selected and participating in the clinical trial. So I I see that already shifting. I'm seeing it. Just wait for the water to roll down. Okay, it's coming. It's, it's, It's already there. It's in motion. In terms of the workforce, 
we're going to want to see folks branding themselves as diversity and inclusion solution engineers, things of that nature. You're going to want to start seeing if, if you are at the site and you've been at the site for a while and you're thinking about a shift to the CRO, but you don't want to get into ClinOps or you don't want to pursue CRA, start to really brand yourself. You know, I'm an entrepreneur of my life. Okay, you have to be an entrepreneur of your life. You have to be an entrepreneur of your career. So test and you have to find ways in which you're going to market yourself and ways in which you're going to, hey, I have like a, like a company, right? I put out a new product. Did it work? Did it fail? Similarly, as a person, put out your new talent, put out your new um, angle. And for me, it's going to be diversity and inclusion. If you can really understand the mechanisms of how patient recruitment and inclusion happens at the site level, you're setting yourself up to catch this massive, massive wave that's coming down. And we're going to, it's already in motion, but wait for January, 2024 and wait till we start to get into Q2, Q3 of 24. It's going to be huge. Well, that's, well, really that's, that's amazing to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That, that brings me to another question. So yeah. if, if this is coming, right, we definitely are going to need more diverse uh, workforce. Of, 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 to reflect this in the real world, right? Um, and if the sites have this diversity um, or this diverse team, um, will that be also a little bit, uh, it will be, I mean, right now as it is, it's challenging for the sites and basically for any organization in research to keep the, the, the employees um the retention has become a little bit of a challenge, right? And and more especially for sites because the sites are losing their professionals to the sponsors or the CROs and all of that. Uh, how you see that going when this water comes to the sites? <laughs> I think looking at folks from different vocational um, backgrounds, and really developing training and education pipelines for them. For example, um, licensed vocational nurses, medical assistants, phlebotomists, um, going into these uh, trade schools that are, you know, like, let's just, let's face it, right? We all don't have the same educational opportunities and some of us can't afford to go to a university or some of us unfortunately had to stop going to school so that we can work and provide for our families. And for me, I, I had to work alongside school full time because my mom was a single parent. And if I didn't provide some financial support, we just wouldn't have made it. And so um, easily I could have gotten, you know, stopped along the way in my higher education. Um, fortunately, I, I didn't have to. Um, <laughs> I did something like Mary Kay, um, which helped immensely. Right. But not a lot of people are, are I think, like me who are saying yes to every opportunity. Um, but the point that I'm trying to get at is you've got to look at these non-traditional people and invest the time, the effort, and the energy in training them and educating and orienting them. Some of my best clinical research coordinators have been certified medical assistants. People who have been in the industry for 10, 15 years have been patient-facing. They just get it. When you tell them, here's the clinical research component, and you train them on the detail orientation, that's the part that's a struggle, right? Is that being detail-oriented after making a shift from a career like that into clinical research. But once you get it, these type of individuals make for amazing, amazing clinical researchers. So one of the things is advocating for um, clinical research training fees in your budgets, right? And being able to say like, hey, here is a training fee of $1,500 that we're gonna need to bring our staff up to speed. Um, what, how do we justify it? Well. You have a shortage of clinical research coordinators. We have a research assistant. There's a pathway to become a coordinator. I need time and effort as their manager to be able to train and develop them, right? And so um, there is a shortage, but I think that is one of the one of the tools is and it's an untapped resource. It's an untapped network of professionals that are probably 10, 15 years into their careers. And they're like, I want more. This can't be it for me. And it shouldn't. And 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 it's you know, what a what a rewarding and satisfying feeling it was for me when I took someone who was 18 years medical assistant and then went on to become the highest performing study coordinator globally for a phase two clinical trial and was being put on a plane to go to investigator meetings and to go and lead webinars because 
he was the best study coordinator on the study. Like that was a proud mommy moment because here you have someone who thought that that was it for them, that they were going to be 18 years in a medical assistant role forever. And, and that, you know, doing a career shift was impossible when in fact, it just took the right person to invest time into them. And that takes, that takes time. That takes resources, right? I still had a nine to five, but what can we do at that site level is to turn around and go to the sponsors and advocate and say, I need funding for my training program or go to other training programs, establish training programs and put your workforce through them, right? Go to sponsors and say, you want to talk about diversity and inclusion. I have a research assistant. Can we put them through this clinical research training program and have that be reimbursed? And then have a, a have that dedicated coordinator to your study, like figure out a way to become, you know, creative with it. But sponsors are going to have to become more and more open to it because they're going to have no choice. You know, mm-hmm. I'm on a study right now where they're saying, oh, this is hard because all of the sites, the coordinators are too um, research naive. That's crazy because you already selected the sites and you're making that assessment after the fact, after the study. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah, I, I like what you're saying. And it's actually to the point and, and, and I mean, exactly to the target that we did. And that, that was our intention when we created the university, mm-hmm. because we wanted each program to educate, but not just that, to give the, the, patient, the students the opportunity to have the ROA in the initial two first, I mean, probably half of the first salary and half of the second salary. And that's it. And not, be, and not having the burden of having a loan <laughs> forever and not yeah. having even a life, right? So uh, that was the intention when we created the programs, when we created uh, at the university. And, 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 uh, and that's why we haven't increased the price, even though we know uh, there is a lot of... Um, people interested on clinical research now is the hot topic everywhere right yeah. um, but we didn't want to do it i mean thinking on taking advantages no we were thinking we have been thinking about the rural areas we have been thinking about the new uh, generations that probably don't have the possibilities to pay and especially thinking about the uh, communities uh, especially, obviously, uh, the Latino community that oftentimes don't have opportunities. So mm-hmm. we say, okay, this is the right price that is not is not so low that people don't uh, value it, and it's not so high that they are going to be forever owing a um, uh, student loan, mm-hmm. which is going to be the next uh, the next um, economy problem, <laughs> yeah. uh, social problem, right? So yeah, I, I like that you mentioned that very much. Yeah, yeah. Of and I think going back, so we had a question here, Alma um, mentioned, what about mentorship for Latinos to penetrate the clinical research world? So I know that on the CRO end, right, and even sponsor, when you're in the organizations, you there's opportunities for mentorship and at least, you know, where I previously was at a CRO, um, as far as here is LICR, you know, uh, as Monica had mentioned, right, we're here about three years. We, um, what makes us different is that we don't charge our members. We feel very strongly that this information should be free to the community. We do not charge. I think we're actually the only minority organization so far, I think. I don't trust me on that one, but that doesn't charge. Um, and because of that, obviously, the work that we're doing is completely free. Um, so we're working with these bigger organizations to hopefully someday that they will come through after all these conversations we've had, um, we'll, you know, eventually do some sort of mentorship, some sort of sponsorship that we can actually start to in, incorporate that aspect of, of bringing mentorship to Latinos that are trying to get into the industry. But, you know, again, it, it takes it takes a lot of time, manpower and sometimes funding Right. And which at the moment right now we do not have. So we do our best just to bring on individuals like Daniel so that we can give you as much exposure to what's out there and what's happening as much as we can. Um, It is one of our hopes that, you know, we will keep with this until finally somebody actually or multiple finally come through. And and then, of course, share that on with our members and or with our other patient advocacy groups that have been um, so graciously keeping the communication with us. But. Yeah, so hopefully if you if you can find anybody, right, and definitely 
do your uh, do what you can to reach out and ask. It doesn't hurt to ask. There's plenty of people out there willing to help. Um, but um, if there's not any more any more questions, since it is already five central, and I believe it's three central over there in in Cali. I mean, sorry, three PSC. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, I want to be mindful of of Daniel's time. Um, I do really appreciate you coming here today, Daniel. Again and again, keeping up with us and letting us know um, what's going on and being so open about the conversation and the perspective on your end. It's been really great and amazing, and we hope to continue to bring you in and anything else that changes, anything that we can do to help and to bring more awareness to what changes worldwide is doing, please do not hesitate to let us know. We want to get it out there uh, to everybody. And um, if not, also email us and we'll give you as much contact as we can. You got but, it. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for having me. Most definitely. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you very much. Right. <laughs> thank yes. you, everybody. Thank you. Thank yes. You. you guys have a great week and, and uh, till next time. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.